Okay, so believe it or not, we are within Shloshim Yom. We are within the 30 days now to Pesach. So I thought I would discuss uh, in a multi-part series a pretty expansive and I think fascinating topic, which is part of the preparation for Pesach. So it really refers to this time period before Pesach. And uh, that is this fascinating concept of the notion of Mechiris Chametz. Mechiris Chametz has quite a history to it, and it's also surrounded by a degree of controversy. And I wanted to go into some detail as far as trying to understand that controversy and consider some of its elements, and also some perspectives on it. So in order to really try to hit all the details, it'll take us a few parts, but hopefully we'll be able to get some interesting perspectives along the way. So to begin with, we'll work a little bit backwards in terms of the history of controversy of Mechir Ishamitz. So we'll talk in a moment about where it's based from, where it comes from, but just to introduce a little bit the aspect of controversy, there was a, a statement of the Bukhor Shor, not the Rishon, the Bukhor Shor, but the Achron, the Bukhor Shor, of Alexander Shor, who lived in the 1700s, and who had a statement about Mechiras Chametz that had a big impact on a lot of the literature. And we'll keep that statement in the background as we consider it. It was a three-pronged statement, had three parts to it, and each part was subject to debate, and we'll get into that a little bit. But nonetheless, as arguable as it may be, these three statements together, this three-part statement, had a tremendous impact on how Mechiras Chametz is viewed as far as the Achronim over the past few hundred years, and we'll try to consider that as well. The statement of the Bechor Shur, the thrust of it basically is, although we'll see this may be somewhat inaccurate as far as the quotation, but the Bechor Shur is understood to have said that Mechiras Chametz is really not so wonderful, is not such a pure endeavor, but essentially it is a harama. So what exactly does harama mean? That itself is a challenge. Harama is a phrase, is a word that appears many times in the Gemara, and how exactly to translate it is itself a very fraught task. It could mean on some level evasion, it could mean something artificial, it could mean something fake, and what exactly it means in this context is itself part of our task in front of us to understand how exactly to apply it. But the Bechor Shor takes this position that Mechiras Chametz is a harama, however we understand that. And for that reason, it should only be used regarding rabbinic law, that it should not be used for Torah law. And this is based on another premise that he has, that a harama is indeed limited only to Dinam Drabanan. So that is a notion that comes from the Gemara, and the Babli and the Rishalmi. However, there's a big debate about the application here because it's tied into the first premise that when the Gemara talks about Harama, 
it's again unclear exactly what it means, but the context in which this idea of a limitation to dinim drabbanan comes up, it means somebody is doing something which is really false. Somebody is, in that case, is talking about the yisurim drabbanan. Somebody is doing an action that would be asumid drabbanan, but he is covering it up as if he's doing something else. And apparently sometimes that's permitted in the context of Drabanans, but the implication is that it's not permitted in the context of Dinim Daraisa. So coming off of that, the Bechor Shor says that since Haramas are not appropriate or maybe not effective when dealing with Torah law, so therefore that's the premise also that Mechiris Chametz should not be utilized when dealing with Torah prohibitions of Chametz. So a part of the debate really connects to the first statement that even if there is such a distinction, even if the Gemara means that in a general sense that everything that is a harama should not be used for Torah law, so is that really the appropriate category here? Here, when the Gemara is talking about it, it's not referring to setting up a sale, for example, in order to remove a halachic prohibition. It's talking about some kind of a fake premise. So the Bechor Shor understood that, but this is a part of his perspective here, that he understands Mechiris Chabetz to be completely fake. He sees it as something that is insincere, that the seller does not really mean to sell it, and the purchaser does not really have any intent to buy it, and very often the purchaser is not capable of buying what he's purchasing, doesn't have the financial wherewithal, so therefore he assumes we're dealing with something artificial. So, on the one hand, that could be the basis for the practice that many have. Uh, there are those who embrace Mechiris Chametz fully, there are those who aren't into Mechiris Chametz at all, and there are many in the middle who will use Mechiris Chametz only for Chametz Darabanan. They won't use it for pure, bet, for, for pure bread, for Chametz Daraisa. They will only use the sale for chametz products that are only prohibited on a rabbinic level. So that could be based on a number of things. It could be based on a general lack of comfort with mechiras chametz, or it could be connected to this statement of the Bechor Shor. However, you should point out that the Bechor Shor himself was not advocating that. The Bechor Shor actually felt that the mechiras chametz that we do with the chametz in our houses is only dealing with an Issa Drabanan. So why should that be true? Uh, don't we have a Torah prohibition of owning chametz by Yerah, by Yimatzeh? These are Dinam and HaTorah. So why is the Bechor Shor assuming that the chametz that we sell in our house is only prohibited on a level midrabanan? So that is because of a statement the Gemara has in the first parakim Saches Psachim. That there the Gemara says that the obligation to search your house for chametz, the obligation of bedikas chametz, is only necessary midrabanan. By Torah law, we're not obligated to search our house for chametz. Why not? Because bebitl ba'alma sagi, that if we use bitl, as we're obligated to do, if we declare the chametz to be something we are disassociating from, so that knocks the iser down to a drabanan. That accounts for the obligation on a level minhat Torah. So therefore, said the Bechor Shur, when it comes to the chametz that we're selling, so we're only dealing with an iser drabanan 
to begin with, so therefore it's okay. So what was he complaining about? So in the context of his remarks there, he wasn't objecting to the mechiras chametz that we do of the chametz in our property. What he was complaining about it was there was a practice then that people who owned animals, they owned the large animals, cows and things like that, so they were concerned that over the course of Pesach, they wouldn't be able to have the full quality feed that was chametz, and they would have inferior food, and they would lose some mass. They wouldn't be as useful as cows. So therefore, in order to keep the cows strong and the same size, so they would sell the animals to non-Jews, and those non-Jews would feed chametz to the animals. So because the Bechor Shor was maintaining that the sale wasn't a genuine sale, and the animals really remained in the property of the Jews, so that means that their animals are being fed chametz on Pesach, are benefiting from chametz, so that's an Isra Min HaTorah. So says the Bechor Shor, that's unacceptable, because it's a harama, it's not a genuine sale, the seller doesn't really mean to sell away his animals, and the purchaser isn't capable of paying for these animals and has no interest in buying these animals, and he's not actually taking possession of them. So therefore, says the B'chor Shor, the whole thing is a harama, and we're dealing with an Isra so that's not acceptable. So the takeaway that many have from the B'chor Shor is that we're talking about Mechirat Chamitz in general, that's considered to be a harama, and therefore it's only acceptable for rabbinic law. It's a little bit questionable. The three premises of the Bechor Shur are all debated. First off, to note that, that the question of whether Mechiris Chameitz actually is a harama is a big debate and may very much depend on the details, so that's a little bit of what we'll try to address over these next few discussions. The premise that haramos can only be used for rabbinic law, that's also a big machlokas. There were achronim on both sides. Many accepted that, many did not accept that. Maybe don't assume that it depends on what kind of harama we're talking about, and that also gets complicated. And the third premise, that our chametz is only subject to an issue midrabanan because of bittel. So that was hotly debated, that many thought that that's not true, because the assumption that Bittel deals with all the chametz and all of the Torah, that's not talking about the chametz that you sell. The chametz that you sell and the chametz that you're mevato, those are probably two different sets of chametz. They don't have the same status, because if you're going to be mevatel your chametz, and then you're going to do business with it, you're going to sell it. So how exactly is that going to work? How is it going to be credible that you're going to say you're divesting yourself of chametz that you then transact with, that you then sell? And how can you be mevatel chametz that you have sold and that you expect actually to re-engage with afterwards? So therefore, many assume that it's two separate groups of chametz. The chametz you sell you're not being mevatel. And what you're mevatel is the chametz that's under the couches, the crumbs, is the chametz that you're not aware of. Uh, some of the Rishonim felt actually that bitl only works on chametz that's not yadua. That was a machlokus Rishonim, but that's how some of the Rishonim assume. And therefore, we should take it to be the case that there are 
two different sets of chametz here, and that we can't say that because of bittel that the chametz that we're selling is only midrabanan. And you'd have to assume that that chametz, if it's actual chametz, is still subject to an iser deraisa. So there was a lot of debate about that position of the bechor shor as well, and there are some who split the position. Palgina uh, dibure here. There are some who accepted the first half the first two halves of the statement, uh, that Mechiras Chameitz is a harama, and that it can only be used for Dinam Drabanan, but they didn't accept this third premise, that Bittol knocks it down to a Drabanan. So that could, on one level, be the basis of the Chumrah that many have, to assume that we should only use Mechiras Chameitz for Chameitz, that's Drabanan, because they accepted the first two postulates, but not the third one. So that might be. There are others who felt there were other ways to knock it down to a drabanan and therefore could be applied to all chametz overall. So that's also something that we'll come back to. But uh, a major detail to emphasize here is one that the Snei picked up on, and that a few others point out as well, that it actually sounds like from the language of the Bechor Shor that he doesn't really conclude that Mechiras Chametz actually is a harama. And again, his main complaint was about selling animals, not about selling chametz. And towards the end of his comments, he says that when it comes to selling chametz, so it could be that the sellers actually do commit to it fully. It could be that they are actually doing that genuinely because they basically only have two choices. They have chametz that they want to hold on to. There are only two possibilities. Either they're going to have to destroy it, or they're going to have to commit to genuinely selling it because otherwise it's going to be chametz avrlava pesach. So says the Bechor Shor, it could be that when it comes to selling their chametz in their houses, the Jews actually do do that seriously, and that's not a harama. But when it comes to selling the animals, so that's where you have a bigger problem because there's no plausibility to saying that these animals are actually being sold, and it's not the same situation where if they don't sell them, the animals are going to be lost anyway. They'll still be able to keep their animals. That kind of a hefsid is not what they're looking at. They're just trying to prevent the hefsid of their animals getting a little skinnier over Pesach because they can't have their high-quality feet. But to say that that minor loss in value and that temporary loss in value, that's enough reason for them to actually sell the animal with full gemir stas, with full sincerity. So he says, that's implausible. That, I don't believe, is actually happening. But when it comes to selling the chametz, it could be that, that they are doing sincerely. So it might be that this whole discussion in terms of the Bechor Shor is based on a little bit of a mistake or a little bit of a disputable reading here, that he doesn't actually maintain that Mechiros Chametz is a harama, just selling animals is a harama, but Mechiros Chametz itself might not be harama even according to the Bechor Shor. So that's some of the background, and we'll see how some of these details play out, but that's some of the background of the contemporary debate, that a lot of it circles around these comments of the Bechor Shor, and whether or not they are taken to be true Lemaisa, whether we assume that Mechiras Chametz is a harama, and whether we assume that therefore it should be limited to Dinam Durabanan, all of these continue to be disputed points. So the third point about Bittal knocking it down and making it Rabbanan, so we mentioned a minute ago, there's some who accept the first two and not the third, and therefore they're more machmir, and they assume that our chametz is awesome in Torah, but still, 
we can't use Mechiras Hamitz for it because it's a Harama. But there are also some who accept this third premise, basically Lakula, and assume that uh, Bechor Shor is correct, that Bittel does somehow knock it down to a Dindarabanan, even though we have to address that question, that we're talking about two separate sets of Hamids, it would seem. But there are some who did accept this view, that Pitl knocks it down to a Dindarabanan, and therefore that's a reason to be Mekel. So therefore we don't need such a serious L, because we're only dealing with an Issa Dindarabanan. So that's a position that's out there as well. But again, many disagreed with this third premise especially, and understood that the Hamids we're dealing with is subject to the Isra Da'araiz of Bayura Bayimatze, and therefore if we're going to use Chiris Hametz for that, so then we have to man up and we have to assume that we're ready to deal with a actual Isra Da'araisa and that Chiris Hametz is sufficient for that. Okay? So far so good? So with that background, we'll also just note that so this idea that Mechiris Chametz is called uh, Haramas, so that doesn't come from the Gemara. The Gemara has a lot to say about Haramas in general, but doesn't necessarily apply it to Mechiris Chametz. That's really coming from this statement of the Bechor Shor and others, as we'll see, but uh, very frequently from the Bechor Shor. But the Gemara does actually talk about a concern of Harama, the Yerushalmi, that's quoted Lahalacha in the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch, that does talk about that in reference to Bittel. So that's actually interesting because one could perhaps raise these same objections for Bittel Chametz, and yet Bittel Chametz we know we are told to do and to assume that it works, and it's an obligation to do Bittel. But there perhaps we can understand a different type of concern. Uh, the idea that Bittel is actually going to be done sincerely and should actually succeed in negating our connection to Chametz. So there is some question about that, so much so that there is the opinion in the Yerushalmi, it's a machlokis in the second parak of Psachim in the Yerushalmi, but the Shulchan Aruch follows this opinion that if somebody claims that he was mevatel his Chametz, and then afterwards finds that there's chametz in his house, so he's still usher to use that chametz. We treat that chametz as if, at least uh, as far as eating is concerned, we treat it like it is chametz avrala Pesach. So why is that the case? If the person was mevatel the chametz, so then that should have addressed Balira Balimatse. That's what the Gemara had said, the Bavli had said that Bittal addresses that. So why should we call that a Chamei Shavu of a Pesach? So then let's say it's Mutter. So the opinion that's recorded in the Shulchan Aruch is the view that we're worried about Harama. So what does it mean to say we're worried about Harama? So there it sounds like the usage is we're worried about falsehood. We're worried about somebody misrepresenting. So it might mean, as some understand, sounds like what it means, is that we're worried that this person will claim to have been Mavatul Chametz, but really he didn't do so sincerely. He was just hiding it until he could then have it after Pesach, and he was never really Mavatul it. So he could claim that he was, and that would be fake. That would be a harama. That would be a deception here. So in order to close off that possibility, we're saying that we're not going to rely on his claim of Bittul, and the Chametz is still going to be Aser. So some thought, uh, the author of the Shavos Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Reisher, he thought that, okay, but let's say there are Edim, that he actually was Mavat al-Chametz. They heard him, he did it out loud in front of Edim, and they saw it, so then maybe we should say, in that case, it doesn't apply, and we're not worried that he's going to misrepresent. 
So to that, the Nodav Yehuda responded that he doesn't think that that's actually the statement, that's actually the concern. It's not that we're worried that he's going to claim to have done Bitl Chametz and that he's not. We believe that he was Mavatl Chametz this time, but we're worried about next time that there's going to be a Harama later, so therefore we want to close off that possibility and we don't allow the chametz to be used because of that, because we're worried about the future. So the Nodav Yehuda said that even if there were a, if we knew 100% sure, people saw it, that he was Mavat of the chametz, nonetheless, we wouldn't allow that to change the din here, and he would still be, he would still be prohibited in using the chametz afterwards. It sounds like from the Shuvah Sarashba, as the Chavalim bin Imim discusses in the Graubart, that there's another interpretation that maybe he really did be Mavat, he really was Mavat of the but we're worried he's going to then reacquire it later, so we want to close off that possibility. And uh, there's another take on this also. Some understand that really the concern is not that he's going to lie about it, but maybe it is more in the sense of harama as we use it, meaning an evasion, that if it's so easy for him to be able to hold on to his chametz, if he claims he's mevatalit, he doesn't do anything further, he doesn't actually search for the chametz and destroy it, but he just wants to say he was mevatalit, and therefore we're going to say there's not going to be a issue of chametz avrlev Pesach. so then people will come just to do that, and they're not going to necessarily follow all of the dinim that Chazal put into place regarding the extra rules about chametz, so therefore that's the harama we're concerned about. So there's a whole literature about that, but it's noteworthy that indeed there is this concern of harama, which was already expressed to Bittel, and Bittel indeed does seemingly raise some of the similar concerns, and uh, there are also the different usage, or the seemingly different usage is also something to take note of. So, okay, so we have that reference. And then we have, like we said, the Bechor Shor causing a lot of debate about this in the 1700s. But the truth is, this issue was already brought up by the Rishonim. And it could be even earlier than that. It could be that it comes from maybe a Tosefta that deals with the whole concept of Mechiros Chametz to begin with. So where does Mechiros Chametz actually come from as far as early rabbinic literature, as far as Shas is concerned? So the Mishnah says in the second parak that one way to get rid of chametz before Pesach is to sell the chametz. But that's presumably referring to a outright sale. You're just getting rid of the chametz and you're not planning on ever reacquiring it. So that would be effective as far as divesting of chametz. You're not going to be in violation of Bayirah, Bayimatzeh, if you sell your chametz to a non-Jew. But the plan that we have nowadays, which involves planning to retake it afterwards and orchestrating that you're able to reacquire it afterwards. So that's not so clear that that's what's being referenced here. So that has a source in the Tosefta and also in the Yerushalmi in the second parak of Psachim. That there, there is a scenario that's described of a person who's traveling on a boat and apparently he has a lot of chametz with him. Presumably he's probably in the business of selling chametz, and travel then was even less predictable than it is now, so he finds himself stuck on this boat. The trip's taking longer than he thought. He finds himself stuck on this boat as Pesach is now coming. 
So what should he do? So it's Pesach, and he owns chametz, and he's presumably not able to just throw it off the side of the boat, and perhaps the assumption is that he needs this chametz for his panasa, but one way or another, he's not ready to throw it into the ocean. So what can he do? So the Tosefta discusses that he can transfer the ownership of this chametz to a non-Jewish fellow traveler, and then after Pesach, he can become reacquainted with the chametz. So on the surface, here you have a source for Mechiras chametz as we have it. Now, there is considerable debate as to whether the source is enough, because it does seem like there is quite a space between what is depicted there and what we do nowadays. On the surface, uh, the fact that the the fact that the Tosefta is discussing a situation which certainly seems like it just happened, that you got stuck. It's not talking about somebody who planned in advance how to be able to hold on to his chametz over the course of Pesach, or functionally to hold on to his chametz over the course of Pesach. It seems like it's describing somewhat of a urgent situation, a surprise situation. Maybe especially this is the parnasa of the individual that he really needs, and he had hoped to sell it before Pesach, but now he's stuck on a boat. He didn't get where he was going. So how can he be able to preserve his Parnassah in this unexpected situation? So this is what he could do. But the idea that we, we have nowadays, that it's planned in advance and it's in your calendar already, meet with a rabbi on such and such a day, and arrange for the sale of the chametz, and people buy chametz knowing that they're going to go through this arrangement later on. So maybe one could say that that's very different than what the Tosefta describes. So what's especially noteworthy is that in regards to this scenario, you find the phrase that you can do this, ubilvad shalo yarin, as long as it's not a harama. Where this phrase comes from is a little bit of a question. It pops up in some of the Rishonim. It's not 100% clear whether the Rishonim brought up this concern that it should not be in the context of a harama, or it could be that that was a girsa they had in the Tosefta itself. That maybe the Tosefta has this phrase, ubilvad shalo yarim. So, the issue of Mechiras Chametz potentially being a harama was already brought up at that level, whether it's in the Rishon or it's in the Tosefta, but it was uh, a long time ago. And already what we're seeing there is that Mechiras Chametz, in this case, may or may not be a harama, depending on the circumstances. So it's not necessarily automatically a harama, but it's a concern that, depending on how you do it, it could end up being a harama. So the question is, so what is the, what is the phrase referring to? So what would it mean would be considered a harama potentially that we have to avoid? So here there are at least three interpretations. And as far as how it impacts what we do nowadays regarding the three interpretations, I'd say one sounds pretty bad for us. One sounds bad but ends up okay. And the third we're more on solid ground with. So we'll start with the bad one. So what's the one that seems to call things into question, especially as far as this harama concern? So the Ritva and a few other Rishonim understand that when we say it shouldn't be a harama, what we mean is that you shouldn't do it every year. So that's going to be definitely problematic for us. If that's what it means, so then we're in trouble because we have our Mechiras Chametz happening every year. Uh, luckily, this view is not brought in the Shulchan Aruch. The idea that that's what it means 
is not accepted lahalacha. It's an interesting question as to why it would be a problem in the first place. So why did the Ritva have this rule that we should assume that we're not allowed to do it every year, that we can only do it once in a while? So, or b'mikra. So that's the question, and the nature of the issue may give us some indication of how serious an issue it is. So on the one hand, uh, it could be that he's saying that essentially this is an evasion, this is a way of getting out of what you're really supposed to be doing. So it's not proper to do it often. It's only because of the urgent circumstances here, assuming that's the details, somebody's whole parnasa is suddenly threatened because of an unplanned delay. So fine, all right, so under these circumstances you can do it. But to do this in a regular way, so then that would be an evasion of the obligation, and perhaps that's why it's wrong. So that's a question if that's the case, because even if the situation is that it's somewhat urgent uh, still, or that it's, it's affecting the individual's parnasa, so still that doesn't mean that it's not something he could do regularly. So that's a, a question. Uh, the issue that there's just something wrong about evading this din, if that's what's going on, that's self-questionable, but if that's the issue, that you just shouldn't do this in a regular, established way, so then maybe it would apply to other so-called haramas also. Uh, Rav Gishtet, there in one of his chuvas, Lahoris Nasan, discusses uh, regarding something else, that he sees it as a harama, and based on the ritva, we should say it can only be done once in a while. But uh, it's interesting to consider whether that really fits, because it could be that the ritva is really talking about things that are specific to chametz. So it could be that it's not just about a concern that you shouldn't do it too regularly because it's an evasion, but it could be something more fundamental regarding the chametz. So it could be, for example that maybe if the purchaser is asked to do this every year, so then he starts to realize that he's going to end up doing this and giving it back every year, and therefore maybe he's not going to take it seriously, and therefore maybe the sale itself is not going to be genuine. Or maybe especially since he knows he ends up always giving it back, so maybe he gets the impression that he's supposed to specifically protect it just for return to the Jew after Pesach, and maybe that is therefore going to leave it in the ownership of the Jew on some level. So maybe it's a more fundamental concern that really is not about haramus in general, but is about mechiras chametz specifically. And indeed, it sounds like from the Ritva, the way he says it, that if one does do it in a regular sense, so then that would actually make the chametz usr. So to say that that's the case, that it would actually create an isr on the chametz, it'd have to be presumably more than just, uh, it's not right to do it regularly, but that there is something there that actually calls the sale into question. So that's uh, important to consider what exactly his point is, what exactly it is that's driving this. But as far as halach lamaisa, so again, we don't see that this is a concern that has been incorporated into psak. Now, it's interesting also to ask that since one could get this impression that it's about the b'mikra kind of situation from the fact that the Tosefta describes it that way, uh, specifically about somebody on a boat and finds himself stuck with the chametz, so one might take it to mean that that's the kind of scenario you need, that it does need to be a surprise mikra kind of situation and not a planned out regular situation. So maybe just 
talking about the boat is enough to make that point. So it's noteworthy that the Shulchan Aruch does not quote it that way with the boat as the specific scenario for the transfer, but the Rambam does. So the Rambam does have the boat formulation when talking about this plan. So that's interesting to note why the Rambam incorporates that. Why don't we just say that anybody who wants to transfer his chametz over the course of Pesach can do so, can give so, give the chametz to his next-door neighbor, he can do it however he wants to do it. So why do we have to bring the boat into the story if it's something that could be done regularly? So that's noteworthy. Again, Shulchan Aruch doesn't have that as part of the story, but the Rambam does. But it doesn't sound like that's the way the Rambam is understanding it. There's no indication from the Rambam that this can only be done b'mikra, or only occasionally. And it's interesting, some of the achronim, and some of the discussions in general, so they interpret the Rambam as Davka saying something else, something in the opposite direction, that it's actually a chiddish lakula, that you could sell it specifically in the boat situation, and all the more so in other situations, because in the boat situation, so maybe one might say that that's actually more artificial, because presumably what was going on is, why is this guy on the boat with all of his chametz anyway? So if it's the chametz that he needs for a living, so presumably he was traveling somewhere to go sell the chametz. So clearly he didn't really have any interest in selling the chametz to somebody who was on the boat with him. He planned on selling the chametz somewhere else. So then when he ends up stuck, and he's now all of a sudden finding a purchaser and the guy who was traveling with him, so you might say, that really looks like that's a fake kind of sale, and that that's not genuine, and we shouldn't allow it under those circumstances. And yet, specifically to be told that even under those circumstances it works, so maybe it's making the opposite point, that not only when it's a situation of unexpected Parnassah threat, but even in a more mundane kind of situation, even when there's less reason to think that the sale is genuine, so then maybe there is still a viability of Mechiris Chametz, and maybe that's the point. So that was uh, one take on what this concern for Harama is, the Ritva maintaining that it means you shouldn't do it regularly, and uh, the Halacha doesn't seem like that's actually accepted, although one could personally choose to be Machmir for that, but it doesn't sound like that's actually made it into psak. So what is a second way to understand it? So the second way to understand it, and this is uh, itself going to open up a major discussion, as will the third, so we'll see how far we'll get now, and we'll uh, probably pick up from here next week. But the second and third ways to understand it do have more of an impact than how we do things. And that really prompts a lot more analysis. So the second way to understand it is that you have to make sure to take the chametz out of your house. And it shouldn't remain in your residence. So that, on the surface, sounds pretty bad for us because it doesn't seem like most of us do that. It doesn't seem like, for the most part, we are actually removing the chametz from our house. So does that mean that we are running afoul of this concern of it not being a harama. So in practice, not necessarily, because here, the Bach and Poskim who came after him, so they assumed 
that we could deal with this in other ways. We don't necessarily have to actually remove the chametz from our house, but we want to make sure that it is accessible to the purchaser and we want to create a special zone within our house where it will be off of our possession and accessible to the purchaser. So therefore, what should we do? So we sell, or we'll see there's some debate about that, but let's say to begin with, we would sell the part of our house also where the chametz is located. And we also provide the key to the purchaser so that he should be able to access it. So there was a lot of debate about that specifically because a part of what we're doing there is we are trying to address a two-pronged problem that we want the sale to be taken seriously and if the purchaser doesn't have access to it, so he's not going to take it seriously. But also, if the seller, if the Jewish seller, maintains himself too much of a access or indicates that he is maintaining some kind of a connection to it, so that also could mean that the seller is not going to take it seriously, is not going to think that there's an actual transaction here. So we're worried about that in both directions, that, let's say, to hold on to the key, would transmit the message to the purchaser that he doesn't actually have access and that the seller is maintaining his access. So if that's the case, so there was a big discussion in Postkim that it could be that there are a number of situations where that wouldn't necessarily be the message. So, for example, if the key was missing, so then that would impact the purchaser being able to access it, but it wouldn't necessarily be a message that the owner is trying to davka keep him out or trying to maintain his own access. Or if there were other permissible items that were kept near where the chametz is, so then that could also explain why the seller would be maintaining his own access. So there was a lot of debate about this, about just how much of a requirement this is, and what exactly is the purpose, and just how serious it is. So there were those who felt that it's absolutely crucial that providing the key is really going to be the, no pun intended, key as to whether this works or not. And if you fail to provide the key, so then there is a huge flaw, maybe even a disqualifying flaw. And there were others who felt it's not really an obligation in the first place, or like the Nodah Behuda writes in Etshuva, where he thought it was very important to turn over the key, but it doesn't invalidate the sale if you don't, and that if the sale is done in a way that the purchaser feels he's purchasing it, so then the fact that later on you fail to turn over the key, that's not something that we can say is going to be a disqualification, even if we should say that it's absolutely necessary that you should turn over the key. So there was a big debate about just how important this is, and uh, in practice, also nowadays, as Mishnah Bura writes, you don't necessarily have to turn over the key, but it's enough to identify where the key is. So therefore, the purchaser will be able to get it if he needs it. So that's enough. And the Mishnah Bura thought that was partially. You don't have to actually turn over the key in order for the key to be available. So there was a, quite a lot of literature about this and just how much this is included in this concern or is the subject of this concern, Shalom uh, Yarim. Nowadays, we also have additional ways of providing access. <coughs> it's on the forums. Sometimes there's a combination lock and it's possible to convey what the numbers are without actually giving a physical key. 
Also, we can give cell phone numbers. So the purchaser will be able to access the seller and say, okay, I want to come now and get the chametz. So he'll be able to call up and say, okay, how can I get it? Or maybe the key is with a neighbor. The key is in a location where the purchaser is able to track it down. So there are many other ways or many different details that may impact just how far one has to go with the key nowadays, and there is this long literature describing it. Uh, however, on the surface, it seems like there was certainly a l'chadchila idea that something of a key nature should be provided, and that seems to be the way that we fulfill this second concern, that the chametz should be removed from our houses through selling the part of the house where it is, and also providing the key. That seems to be the way to address that. In general, this idea that this kind of seems like a harama on that requirement, this seems like a pretty weak way of fulfilling the requirement of taking it out of the house. So a part of what we should be aware of as far as that is that it's not really clear why it has to be taken out of our house in order for this to be valid. Because chametz of a non-Jew that's in the home of a Jew is not subject to a violation of ba'ira ba'imatzeh. So why is it that all of a sudden it becomes so crucial to take the chametz out of the house if it's possible to avoid Bayra Bayamatse without that, Meikur Hadin, Chametz that's in your house but happens to be the possession of a non Jew is not going to put you in violation of Bayra Bayamatse. So, why it is that there's this notion of taking it out of the house to begin with wasn't so clear, and there are various suggestions, mostly in the later literature, as to what this is meant to accomplish. Some suggest that this goes back to the Bechor Shur and addresses his third condition, that the idea that it has to be Drabanan, but Bittel knocks it down to a Drabanan, so we mentioned that was a controversial point, because some accepted half of it, but not the other half, accepted that it has to be Drabanan, but not necessarily that Bittel is effective in knocking it down to that. So there are some who suggest that maybe there are other ways to knock it down to a Drabanan, and maybe this is one of them. So this is something that Rav Moshe Sternberg and others discuss, that there is a position of some of the Rishonim and the Vilnagon, that if you own Chametz, but it is stored in the house of a non-Jew, so then that's only a violation of Rabbanan. So some suggested that that's the idea, that we want the Chametz to be technically in somebody else's house, so that will create only an Isid Rabbanan instead of a Daraisa, and that's why Mechira works. Others suggest, and maybe this is a more straightforward approach, that we're just genuinely concerned that if it stays in your house, so then you may come to eat it. And that's clearly the biggest risk here as far as Hilchus Chametz is concerned. That's an Kares. And being that we are going a long way in terms of not actually requiring the destruction of the Chametz, and that itself may weaken the version that one might have. So one here now is going to have the chametz in his house and physically accessible. So therefore, that may lead him to actually eat it. So therefore, we have to do something to affect that. So at least it should be technically relocated and there should be certain steps taken to put it more in the possession of the purchaser and less in the possession of the original owner. And maybe that's why. So being that it's not really clear why it's so fundamental to the sale that the chametz be removed from the house, so that's a part of why these various methods to 
sit in for this, to fill in the role of removing the chametz from the house, have been accepted, possibly because it's not 100% clear why that condition is a condition in the first place. But indeed, this is the second aspect, the second possible theory as to what we mean by avoiding a harama, that it should be taken out of the house, and that's how the literature treats it. So, strictly speaking, it doesn't sound like that's as much of a problem for us as it sounds on the surface, that the different methods that we have to address that suffice in terms of taking the chametz out of the house, that we can indeed sell that part of the house and provide the key. Now, that last phrase is actually itself the subject of some controversy because there were those who objected that selling the chum, selling the house, that's not going to work. And instead, you have to rent the house specifically and Davka not sell it. So why should that be? So that'll be our cliffhanger. So maybe we'll start with that next week. So we'll pick up from that the second interpretation of what we're trying to avoid, the second Harama interpretation, and a major controversy that surrounded this detail. Indeed, should the house actually be sold? Should the parts of the house actually be sold? Or should it be rented? Or is there... Uh, any other options, and why is it so debated? So, God willing, we will pick up from that next week. So, I wish you all a wonderful night. It should be only good things. And the Freilichen Shushan Perm, or at this point, uh, Shushan Shushan Perm. And I will, God willing, see you next week. Kaltav.